Um, we're in a series that we're calling uh, This Changes Everything. And, and what we mean by this changes everything is we're looking in the Gospel of John at the signs that John delivers uh, to us. And the, John, in his gospel, intentionally uses that word sign uh, to point to something that Jesus does that points to something greater. And that something greater is who Jesus is and how he is at work in his time on earth and how what he is doing on earth is bigger than that. It's bigger. And for me, as a, as a person, um, I have a personality type, just like all of you guys do as well. Uh, and my personality type is I'm very type A. And what I mean by that is I like a plan in my life. Like, right, how many, how many people are, are type A planners, right? And there's a sliding spectrum of a plan, right? And what I mean by this is uh, there's other people in the world that sit on the opposite side of that spectrum, which you're more like, I fly by the seat of my pants, right? And how many of you are, you're not even committed enough to raise your hand for that. You're just like, hey, that's how I fly by. The, and like, I don't know, maybe I do. And it's like, and there's a sliding spectrum, right? In that regard of there's people who are like different areas of life planned out rather than others. But I'm a planner and I like most areas of my life. I like them to be planned and I like to work that plan until that plan doesn't work and then I make a new plan. And the problem with that mentality in, in my life when it comes to following Jesus is too much of the time I can find myself wanting to fit God in this box and be like, okay, I got this plan. I need you to work this plan that I have created. And what we see here in John's gospel with these signs, if you will, is Jesus kind of saying like he has his plan and our invitation, not only the invitation for the first disciples who he was walking with, doing ministry with, but also us is to see first, to notice how he is working, to respond to his work and then join him in his working. And so this morning in John chapter 11, those three invitations are gonna be noticed to see what God is doing to respond to what Jesus is doing and then to join him in the work. You're gonna notice that this is, if you're counting and following with us, the sixth week. So this is sign number six. And we said there's seven signs, but you know like, oh, next Sunday is not Easter Sunday. Well, I wanna give you a little just roadmap for the next couple of weeks. Next week, we're looking at the interlude from John 11 to 12 of how the religious leaders respond to these signs of Jesus. So it's going to be feel like a little bit of a pause in our series of This Changes Everything. And then it's going to be Palm Sunday. So we're going to continue on of seeing Jesus enter into town, that son of suffering headed towards the cross. And then we're having a Good Friday service. We'd love to invite you out for that on uh, Good Friday, that Friday. And then sign number seven, shocker, it's Resurrection Easter Sunday. So that's the next couple of weeks uh, in this series. But we're gonna see sign number six in John chapter 11. If you have a copy of God's word, meet me there. John 11, one, it says this. It says that now there was a certain man who was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So this is a context that we have that's setting up this next sign. We have the, the people, the major players at play. We have Lazarus. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha. We're given in uh, verse two, a, um, a, a backwards looking at who Mary was because this scene actually happens 
next week in our scripture in John chapter 12. And we have this setup, like we have Lazarus, we have Mary, we have Martha, we have the location of where they are. They're in Bethany, that's their village, uh, which sits a few miles outside the city of Jerusalem where uh, Jesus just was at. This is the scene. This is the setup of what's happening. Verse three, let's continue on. So the sisters sent to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He who you love. And so they're calling on Jesus' love. In this moment, if you remember, these are some of the closest followers of Jesus. These two sisters, this brother, they are in the in crowd, if you will. They're not one of the 12 disciples, but they are in. They follow Jesus in this ministry. And if you just think back over the past couple of weeks, just the past couple of weeks, what they've seen Jesus do. They've seen Jesus feed the hungry, heal a blind man. They've seen Jesus raise a official son back from the dead. So they have this faith that they know the possibilities with Jesus are not limited to anything. And so they're thinking like, okay, surely you get a window, if you will, into the plans of these two sisters. Like we got to ask Jesus for help. Like we call on him because we need him in this desperate hour of need. We, we need his help now, right? We, th- this could be us many times in our life. Like we call on Jesus in times of help. A couple of months ago, uh, we were sitting in the parking lot of Coles when we still lived in New York. We just moved to join the Journey family. And um, my son Wells was, uh, let's be honest, he was acting a fool in Coles. And so we had to take him out to the car, okay? And we were taking him out to the car. And my wife and I were trying to get our boys in the car. She's pregnant and all these things are happening. And uh, we're trying to talk to him because he was just not behaving at any scope of good in in the store, running all around, trying to not close off the rack. And, and he gets in the car and we're, you know, getting stern as parents of toddlers. And, and he goes, Jesus. <laughs> and he's like, are you really going to pray right now? And I was like, well, he is in trouble. So it's a perfect time to pray. And this is exactly what Mary and Martha are doing. They're calling on Jesus in their time of trouble. Their brother is sick. We don't know what kind of sick he is, but in that day, if a cold came upon you, you were worried. You're like, I don't know if we're going to make it through this. But they're like, I know I have an answer in my time of need. I can call on Jesus. They call on Jesus' love. And it's not just they think Jesus loves them, right? It's like, oh, Jesus loves me. Like, this is a good thought. John was convinced of this. You're gonna see throughout this text, in, in fact, in verse 36, when Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb, spoiler alert, he does die. But the Jews who see Jesus weeping, they're like, wow, he loved him. And in fact, in John thought, he, he, he cites in verse three and verse five and in verse 36, Jesus' love, not only for Lazarus, but also for these two sisters. Everyone can see that Jesus, in fact, does love these people involved in the story. It's not this superficial love. It's a genuine love that Jesus has. But for whatever reason, Jesus is working the long game here because in verse 17, we find out that now Jesus came and he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So Jesus, when he gets this word, waits a little longer for Lazarus to be good and dead before he decides to come. But he loves him. But he loves him. Verse four, go circle back in. But when Jesus heard, he heard the news from the sisters from a messenger He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. 
This is great news. This is great news in the midst of Lazarus' suffering and in fact, the sister's suffering of their brother being ill. And they're like, okay, that's good. That's, that's good news. In fact, if you think about these disciples, they're in another location, not directly connected to these sisters because they had to send word. They're like, okay, good. This, this suffering has a purpose. It does not lead uh, to death, but it's for the glory of God. It's, it's like the other signs. It's pointing to who Jesus is. And our first point, if you're taking notes, write this down, that Jesus always works with an eternal purpose. Jesus always works with eternal purpose. We see that this, even this suffering, in fact, is for the purpose of God's glory. More specifically, that the Son of God would be glorified through it. That the Father and the Son are receiving glory because of this sign. We need to hear this in our lives, that our lives are for the eternal workings of God who he is and how he acts. That Jesus is always working, not only in this story, but in our world with an eternal perspective. No matter what kind of suffering, what kind of hardship, heartache that you may be going through right now, hear these words, that Jesus is always working with an eternal, a long game approach in our lives. Not just the right now, the immediate. Because often in our lives, when we have suffering that happens upon us, our prayers are really quickly, Jesus, remove this. Remember, he who you love is sick. When that happens in my life, I quickly pray, really quick, God, take it away. I'm often not quickly to pray, Jesus, teach me through this. I'm often not quickly to pray, Jesus, let me see how you're working. But in the midst of my pain, when it's someone that I love, I'm just praying, Jesus, take it away. But we don't, we don't see Jesus working in that way. He, he invites us to pray like this. He invites us to see like this, but often we don't see like that. We're like Mary and Martha in this story. We, we are like, Jesus, fix it. And what I mean by fix it is take away his sickness. But that's not what Jesus does. The love that Jesus has for them leads him to do this. Verse five. He's going to say it again. John says again, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So not only is Jesus' love for Lazarus, the one who is sick, but his love is also for these two sisters. Notice that here. So this was his response. Verse six, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews who were seeking to stone you, are you going there again? They're referencing in John 8 at the end of the story in the temple when Jesus says like, I'm better than Moses. I was here before Moses and you're the children of the devil, not his children. Like that story in John chapter 8 That's what they're referencing because at the very end, they pick up stones to kill Jesus, uh, to stone him to death. And they're like, "Uh, I'm not sure if we need to go back there. (laughs) They probably have not forgotten by now. Um, They remember that you really offended them. Um, That's what they're referencing. And then verse nine, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken 
of his death, but they thought he, that he meant taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So John highlights that Jesus stays two more days where he was. So Lazarus would not just be dead, but good and dead. Because in that culture, if, if anything inside of that four-day window, three days or shorter, was uh, someone was uh, pronounced dead and they came back to life, it was viewed as like a doctor reviving or cleansing sickness. That, oh, maybe they were just in a coma and they came back. Like they were just sick. They weren't really dead. A healer could come by in that town, a, a magician, a, a doctor, if you will, give him some ointment and like, boom, he, he's back to life. He's good. So Jesus intentionally waits for that four-day mark because past four days, he gone. Like he's dead. He's, he's good and dead. So he intentionally waits in that mantra of like, he's not just sick, but he is dead. But why does Lazarus have to die? Thinking about this eternal perspective, this eternal mindset, like Jesus gives us the reasoning that Lazarus has to die. It's for the disciples, Look again in verse 15. It says, for your sake, I am glad I was not there. For your sake. It's not for his sake, Lazarus' sake. It's not for Jesus' own sake. He's like, I'm, this, I'm glad for your own sake that I was not present with him in this moment. Because you need to believe. We've talked every week, almost this word believe that John's used. That means to put full trust all in with Jesus. And for whatever reason, even up to this point, Jesus was convinced that the disciples' faith was, their faith was immature. It didn't have the weight that it needed to withstand life in and of itself or even his absence. It was unmatured faith. So Jesus again says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that maybe you'll believe this time. And so he continues on in this but the disciples are confused. They're like, well, if he's just sick, then he'll be better. Make him better. He's like, no, he's died. He's dead. And then he says this perplexing statement. This perplexing statement in verses 9 and 10 that I'm going to pose this question before I reread it. The question is, is where does following Jesus or ultimately where do our lives lead us? Because this is the question underneath Jesus' statement in this. He says in verse nine, are there not 12 hours in a day? They're like, yes, 12 hours sunlight. Yep, there, there's 12 hours in a day. They, they would get that. And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world, which is the sun that sits in the sky, right? The sun sits in the sky. If you walk, if you travel during the day, you would see the sun and your path would be illuminated. And if you think of the, the region that they would have to travel in, the rocky hills and mountainous region, like you would need the light. No one's going rock climbing at 10 o'clock at night. Like they're, they're doing that during the day where they can see plainly. But he transitions. He says this in verse 10. But... If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
In the context of this paragraph here, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. And who am I? Well, he had just told them he's the light of the world, that he was the light. And they're concerned about their safety in their life. And in these two verses, in this context, the question that is being posed is, will you follow me even if it leads to danger? Will you follow me even if it leads to danger? Because if anyone walks in the day, he sees because of the light. And they're thinking sun, right? I mean, that's the first thing that you think. But he has just told them, chapter back, I am the light of the world. So the biggest need that you need is not safety. It's not comfort. It's being with me. And if I tell you go, go. If I tell you stay, stay. But the question is, is will you follow me even if it gets uncomfortable? It's the same question for us, right? Question is, if Jesus calls you to something, will you do it even if it's scary? Even if it's uncomfortable? Will you follow Jesus even if it leads you into danger? So the question is, is where is Jesus calling you to? There's many opportunities of getting involved in ministry, not only connected inside journey, like, hey, maybe the craziness for you is like, I do not want to serve in kids ministry. But maybe it's a little bit bigger than that. Not that kids ministry isn't big ministry. It is. If God's calling you to it, serve in it. But maybe what scares you to death is knocking on your neighbor's door across the road because they don't maybe look like you, talk like you, act like you, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's serving in foster care and getting involved in helping kids in need. Where is Jesus calling you? And even if it scares you to death, even if it costs sacrifice, financial sacrifice, time commitment, comfort commitment, will you do it? Because all the thing in these disciples' minds is John chapter eight at the end of the temple, like those guys in power have rocks that they want to throw at us. I don't want to go. But in the midst of that, we have the Thomas who later is pinned as doubtful Thomas, like the doubter. He gets called the doubter. But in this moment, listen to his statement. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. He's utterly convinced. If I go with you, I'm going to die, but I'll go with you. He knows what may be coming in his life. He says, okay, I'll go, but I'll die. Like he has so much faith packed into this statement, yet it may seem a little downcast because it is. But what, what about us? What about our lives? Will we go even if it causes us to suffer, to have pain? So they go. So they go. And what we have in these next two scenes is we have a scene with the first sister and the second. So the first one is with Martha. Verse 19, we'll continue on. It says, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. They're both grieving. And what I want you to simply notice is they both grieve in very different ways. Their brother's dead. He's been dead for four days. And we have the first scene of Martha running to Jesus. Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. But I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. 
Here are these faith claims that she's making in this moment. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, verse 23, my brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Martha says all the right things. She has this undeveloped faith in this moment. says, if you'd been here, he would not have died. Well, that's not also true. Because remember two signs earlier when the official son is healed early in the gospel of John, the official says, you don't even have to step foot in the same town. I believe if you say it true, it will be true. And the boy is healed earlier in John and they would know this. So why does her faith need to say that Jesus, you need to be with me in order to solve these issues? So her faith is undeveloped, but even in the midst of that, She says this faith claim in verse 22 that says, but I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. That she seems like, well, maybe you could do this thing. Maybe you could raise him back from the dead, but but I'm not really sure in this moment. I'm not really sure if you can, if you will. I, I don't know. I know you loved him, but how much did you love him? Is this your purpose? Is this your plan? She's really wishy washy. She's back and forth. And then in verse 25, 26, and 27, we have these big faith claims. Jesus says another I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And for Martha, being a, uh, a Jew, she would have believed in a resurrection. She would have believed on the last day that those who are followers of the one true God would rise again. But Jesus is taking her general faith and trying to make it a specific faith. To say that, yeah, yeah there is a resurrection But Martha, what you've been waiting on is me. I'm the resurrection. She's trying to take, he's trying to take her faith from general to specific in this moment. But, and she says the right thing. She says, yes, you're the Christ. You're the one. Yes, Lord, I believe. But Martha in this moment must make a warning for all of us that we can know the right statements. But if our Belief, our actual real life living doesn't line up with what we claim to believe. There's a disconnect that the Bible and Jesus himself calls that hypocrisy. Because later on, Martha is going to be the one that says, Jesus, don't roll away that tomb. He'll stink. Don't open the door. He's dead, remember? I told you, you missed your shot. But Martha said the right statements. She had the right verbal confession, but her life commitment in this moment, her faith wasn't developed enough. And so she heads off in this moment that Jesus continues on. He's looking for Mary. Martha runs ahead to have a conversation with her sister to prep. Hey, Jesus is coming. Hey, Jesus is coming. Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to Jesus, he saw her where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet saying, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. There it is again. If you'd been here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he, uh, could not he opened the eyes of the blind man? Also have kept this man from dying? They said, if he could have done that, if he would have showed up in time, he could have done another cool miracle. He could have done another cool sign thing that he was doing. So let's see what's happening here in this moment with the second sister. Mary, and, and some theologians claim that Mary is complaining yet again. That, oh, if you'd been here. But I don't think that Mary's complaining. I don't think there's a, a some hint maybe of her complaining, but I think that she's just displaying her emotions differently than her sister Martha. Because yet again, she displays an unmatured faith that if you would have been here, that for some reason Jesus needed to be present in order to do something miraculous. But he doesn't in other miracles because he notices the people's faith who is asking and responds in accordance. So she in this moment, for whatever reason, can't look past death, that death has its final say. So Martha says, if you would have been here. And then there's this massive party of friends that she may have, or maybe they're, they're public weepers. We're not really sure, uh, but the Jews would pay people to professionally weep with others at grave sites. So there's this crowd of people just wailing and weeping at this tomb, like you would see at a funeral service of someone who was dearly loved, and Lazarus was clearly dearly loved. But he says to Jesus, Jesus moves, and he's moving towards the dead man with these crowd of weeping people and he wants to go to the tomb because he came to do something. And it's hard. We can't develop this like a movie because most of you know how this story ends because Jesus came to raise him back from the dead. We can learn this to be true in our lives and in Lazarus that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He made dead people alive. Jesus came to make dead people alive. And the issue that he has, and we're gonna dive into these few verses of Jesus weeping here with Mary and her faith is because he, she thought that her brother was too far gone. So thinking about this in your life, as we approach Easter, one of the easiest invites to church seasons in the church calendar, who do you have that perspective on? Who do you have the perspective they are too far gone. They would never step foot in a church. God couldn't do anything in their life. They are too far gone. Maybe that perspective is on you and you're just doing the right thing. You know, your family wants to be here. You're glad to be here, but you, you know, honestly, God doing something crazy in your life, I am too far gone. Because we see Jesus moving in this way to give new life where there was absence of life. That Jesus came to bring him new life in this moment because he was dead, real far gone, all the way gone. Nothing else was possible. He needed Jesus to do something miraculous. Earlier in John, in John chapter six, Jesus teaches his disciples this truth about new life. In verse, uh, chapter six, verse 63, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
that this is why he came. But the fact is the people missed that Jesus was the bread of life sent from heaven. And Jesus gets the fact that they missed yet again, that he is the resurrection, that they weren't looking for something general, that they had found the specific. So this happens, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews also had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Let's look at these two phrases, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This leads us to the famous yet shortest verse in the Bible that every kid who goes to Awana memorizes, right? Jesus wept, got it, give me a sticker, all right? But what, what happens in Jesus' weeping? What is it that is so special or important about Jesus wept? You'll hear some pastors, they'll talk about the fact that it reveals Jesus is human, it's true, 100%. It reveals a side of Jesus' humanity that he has emotions. The other cultures would say that their God is emotionless. That's the equivalent of reaching God-like status is to bury your emotions so far deep that you should never tap into them because that's what it's like to be like God. But that's not true because our God, the one true God, weeps. But the question is, why does he weep? What moves Jesus so intentionally? This phrase that John uses is actually just one original word, deeply moved. But the deeply moved is not like a, oh, he's sad because they're sad. The word deeply moved literally means to express harsh anger. But we notice that Jesus expressed this in his spirit. So you could say it like this, if you're a parent of a teenager or if you're approaching teenagers, I've told that you need to learn how to yell on the inside but not on the outside sometimes, right? This is, this is a basically what's happening. Because this specific word of deeply moved is used in other sources to explain the expression of a horse snorting, <coughs> like them blowing their nostrils out when they're getting ready to charge at something. That's not an awe moment in your life. I don't know if you've ever seen a horse snort with their nostrils blown out, but this is the exact same word that's used for Jesus being deeply moved. So there's a harshness that arises in Jesus' spirit in this moment. But let's look at the next word, greatly troubled. The word in the original language literally means to be agitated. So Jesus is experiencing this harshness in his inner spirit and he is agitated. And then that agitation and that harshness in the spirit leads him to weep. So it's not an awe, look how he loved Lazarus. He's sad because he died. That doesn't make any sense. He knows that he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead and then he will do it in a few moments. So he's not all, Lazarus is dead. It's, do they still not get it? I just told them that I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Anything that I ask of the Father, he'll do. And they still don't get it. They're still weeping. They're still saying statements like, if you'd been here, you could have done something. Could have, in the sense of past tense, that there's nothing else to be done. He's too far gone. There's, there's nothing else you can do here, Jesus. Let's go weep together. No, their faith is so immatured that they don't think Jesus has the power or potential to do anything. Yet, he is the bread of heaven from John chapter six who brings manna of full fulfillment that they don't just eat what they need. They eat as much as they want. 
that he is the bread. He is the light of the world in John chapter nine who gives sight to the blind man and brings new life into his story. And then these other people, these other leaders, they have the audacity to say, well, if he couldn't heal the blind man, why couldn't he heal the sick man? So Jesus is ticked to say the least. And rightly so, because he's given sign after sign after sign after sign. That he's not just some miracle healer, but he is in fact the son of God who has came into the world to redeem it, to restore it, to renew it. And in this moment, he says, I'm the resurrection. And they still don't get it. They're still going through formalities. They don't get it. So the question is, is what does he do next? He's deeply moved again. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, remember the sister who said, yep, you're the resurrection, you're the son of God. The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? that if you believed, in, believed, you would see the glory of God. Because time and time again, she missed it. And we looked at that word. I've already said it once this morning. That word believe means put full trust in. Like I'm all in kind of trust. Like no wavering, no backtaking, no doubt. Like full in, I'm all in. How many of us in our areas of our life, what area are you like Martha in right now? That you can trust God in this part, but like this other thing, like, nope, not, not right now. Like, it might stink a little. <laughs> Let me clean that up first, and then I'll invite you in. Like, no, that's, that's not the invitation of Jesus, because Jesus says, trust me. If you believe, you would see not, hey, he'll come back to the dead. But the glory of God that Jesus is working in a specific way, not to provide them comfort, not to provide them just this inkling of now hope, but he is providing and what he wants to provide for them is for them to see the glory of God, not only in this moment, but for all their lives. Because when they learn to see Jesus for who he is, it will change everything. And for them to see the glory of, the, of God, that word glory can be uh, also used to word power, weight, or brilliance. Think of it like this. Jesus says, I'm working so that you can see the power of God. I'm working so that you can see the weight of God. I'm working in this so you can see the brilliance of God. It's not just this like, oh, that's cool, he's back. No, he said, I'm working very specifically, not only in Lazarus' life, but your life, Mary, your life, Martha, and all these disciples. I'm working and I love you so much that I don't want you to be comfortable. I want you to be close I don't want you just to be comfortable in your life. I want you to learn to be close to me. And when you're close to me, you will walk in dangerous situations in your life because you have comfort and trust in my presence, not just in this world. So he says, take away the stone. Trust me enough. Open up your life in such a way where I can come in and bring new life. You don't have to clean it up first. So at some level, 
Apparently they sensed he was a little frustrated and they're like, okay, let's smell this stink together. So they rolled away the stone. Verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, he praised this public prayer in this prayer in this moment. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this. Can you imagine just being in this scene this moment? Just take a pause here. Like Jesus is talking out loud to God the Father around these other people and he says this statement. I said this on the account of these people standing around that they would believe you sent me. Jesus is bold enough in this moment. He's like, hey, I get it. Like Father God, they don't even believe in me right now. But I'm saying this for them so maybe that they can hear the fact that I know they don't, know, they don't believe right now. He's like being very slighty in this moment. But I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, then the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There's a few things I want to talk about as we begin to close up here. There's his feet were bound and his face were wrapped. Many of us, at least for me, for a long time, I, I would think like he was mummified, like he was put in a mummy with all these linen strips. But traditional grave clothes for the Jewish uh, person who had died, but they would lay a sheet out that was probably twice the size of the person's body, fold them in it, and they would take linen strips and specifically wrap their head and their feet and then their hands to their body. So Lazarus, being a dead man, was able to probably hop out of this tomb. And remember, this tomb was a cave. So I, want, I wonder how the dead man, when he wakes up from being dead, now he's alive again, how does he get out? He's got a cloth over his face. His feet and his hands and his waist are bound. So he can like kind of do like a holy hop, like out of the tomb. That's, legi that's legitimate. That's not me trying to be funny, but he can hop out of the tomb. And Jesus sees him and says, hey, unbind him, let him go. So he's wrapped up in these grave clothes in this moment that are very appropriate for the, the life that he was living, the dead one. Right? But Jesus notices in this moment that these grave clothes are no longer relevant because he has new life. Because Jesus commands, take these off. They're no longer needed. And Jesus' authority here needs to be addressed because Jesus specifically calls out, Lazarus, come out. One scholar pointed out that he needed to say Lazarus because if he wouldn't have, there would have been every grave in Jerusalem, somebody had been trying to come out. Because not only does Jesus command life over Lazarus, but over all death. That he can bring new life into any situation that he so chooses. So for us, in your life specifically, have you experienced new life? Have you heard the call of Jesus in your own life to come alive? Because Jesus is still making dead people come to life. And our job as followers of Jesus, 
Our job as the church, if you will, to say it in a point, is to listen to Jesus' words in verse 44, to unbind and help him be free. That's what these words mean. So the church's job is to help unbind people, not help in the burial process. Our job in discipleship is not to tell people that they need to get cleaned up or get out, but to simply help them be unleashed in God and who God has called them to be, to shed sin, not to shame or point fingers. That we allow the spirit of God to move, convict heart, bring people back to life because he is still doing it. So there's two questions that I wanna wrap up with that I want us to ponder on as we respond. The first one is this, is who in your life do you feel is too far gone? Who in your life do you feel is too far gone? And that answer is not limited to even you yourself. It's not limited to you yourself. And the, the second question is this, is how will you pray in light of that? How will you pray and act in light of that? Who in your life do you feel like is too far gone? Because the truth is the truth of the matter that Jesus is still making dead people come to life. That those who were dead in their sins, dead in their way of life, he is still bringing new life. That you're not too far gone. And my prayer for Journey Church is that we would be a church that is helping in the unbinding process. That as God is at work, that we see it, we respond to it, and then we join in that work. That we would be not helping in the burial process prepare people for death, but helping unbind them as the Spirit is working, bringing new life into their stories. So who do you think is too far gone? And then how are you going to respond in light of that? Who is it this week that needs a word of encouragement to hear about how Jesus has changed your life? Or maybe right now in this moment, you like, I, I'm the one. I'm the one that's, that I feel like I'm too far gone. I don't feel like Jesus can do anything in my story. If that's you, our prayer team is gonna be down front and we would love to pray with you and help encourage you about what Jesus can do in your life if you just let him loose. I'm gonna pray for us and then our team's gonna come out and we're gonna respond in one final song. Our prayer team's gonna be down front. They would love to pray with you as well. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are and the fact that you still are bringing new life into dead situations. Got so many people right now that we need an eternal perspective to see you and how you're working and respond to you and join you in that work. God, would you move in such a way where we would experience new life in us and be beacons of hope to others around us. And may we be a church that helps in the unbinding process, not in the burial process. Father God, we love you. May you move and have your way in this moment. In Christ's name, amen.